It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for joining us. Real quick promise. Please find us and follow us at Mistreat Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have curated content on Pinterest and Flipboard. Check out our channels on TikTok and YouTube. And if you would be so kind, like that famous prince we all know, please show us some love and rate and review us. Positive vibes only, right? But first, champagne. Hello, my lovely. How are you? We're good. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Larissa. Oh, it's so good to see you and hear you. And it is. Um, get back into our pool of scandal and misdeeds and all kinds of intrigue. So I have to start the show talking about the new Halston. The movie? Yes. The family, I think, said that they weren't happy with it. But I never know if family's ever really happy with how their family members are depicted. So who's in it? Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi gets bent over by a dude, <laughs> which I was like all about. Hello there. So you and McGregor, is that what you're saying? Yes. He makes a great Halston. Wait, is it out now or just the trailer? No, it's on Netflix. Stop it. Okay. I have to do this. I have to. Pictures meant everything to Halston. Life is like a picture, he used to say. I'm Halston. My name is Halston. The most successful single individual in the history of American fashion. Ladies and gentlemen, Halston. His clothes danced with you. You were free inside your clothes. The simplicity was really needed, and it was all American from an all-American boy. He came from nowhere. Were you the person who put the pillbox on Jackie Kennedy? Yes, I was. And he really saw the future. His front row was the most glamorous in New York. He was the first to really bring in movie stars. And let's face it, Halston had some amazing designs. I mean, he was a pretty good designer. So we got some stories that came in this week. One of them I really want to talk about again, where I always feel like I have to put this disclaimer. We are equal opportunity, non, what is it? Nonpartisan podcast. We don't talk politics, but we may talk about personalities and politics. Yes. And there's always a good scandal, whether you're a libertarian, a Democrat, a Republican, there's good scandals all around. Completely. And so one of the items that came out and I had to, I really wanted to talk about it was there's a new book coming out called Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Now, I live in Washington, D.C. You will see an occasional Secret Service agent, FBI agent out on the dating sites. I may have gone and partook on a date. I feel like I call it field research because I really just was there. Like I went out with an air marshal. I went out with another guy that used to report to Cheney in the mornings. Were you taking notes? You're like going to the bathroom, taking a little recorder. Okay, this is what <laughs> I know. I'm like the Russian spy without the spy or the Russian part. But and so there's a book coming out May 18th, and it talks about how Don Jr.'s ex-wife Vanessa and Tiffany Trump both inappropriately and perhaps dangerously got close to their secret service detail when Donald was president. So how come we have barely heard anything about Don Jr. and his divorce? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay. 
back up. Okay. I get Tiffany. She is, you know, the single, wild, free, whatever. By the way, I was in a movie with Marla Mabels when she was married to Donald. Yes. Executive decision. The global response is routine. London is demanding immediate action. There's a hatch on the belly of the 747 near the nose. We could dock there. I know you wrote the book on assaulting hijacked aircraft, but this is five miles above the earth. I don't think we have any other options. And advanced technology. Who's this? 007? Can accomplish miracles. What are you doing up here? Who the hell else is going to do it? You? So I got to see her every day on set and she always seemed incredible. She always seemed a little like, like a frightened cat. She was always kind of paranoid. Really? She reminds me of my mom. She has like the jitters. Like something's going to pop out. If you were married to Donald, I mean, you'd always be afraid that, yeah. And anyway. I live, remember being living in New York because obviously I grew up in New York and all the headlines when he got caught on the ski slope. Yes. With Marla Maples and his wife and all that. Like that was big time news. That was big time news. Those were the best headlines. When Trump walked away from their 13-year marriage, it cost him a total of $14 million. The bill came due not long after wife Ivana confronted Mistress Marla Opre Ski in Aspen. That day in the restaurant, when you saw those two women actually meeting each other face to face, how did you feel? We were actually standing near the restaurant, getting ready to put skis on. And I was standing there like an idiot. And Marla and Ivana were here. And it wasn't shouting, but you could obviously see there was some friction. And a man who was standing right next to me, who weighed about 350 pounds and wasn't a very attractive guy, said to me, it could be worse, Donald. I've been in Aspen for 20 years and I've never had a date. And I'll never forget the statement. And it sort of lightened it up a little bit for me. I'm saying, you know, I guess it could be worse. Do you think unless the two had actually come face to face, you would have confronted that situation? Well, it's interesting because it's possible that, you know, maybe it would still be going on. I'm not sure. Truth be told, Donald Trump had lived a charmed life. So I understand Tiffany. She's free, young, beautiful. But Vanessa and Donald Jr., they've been married, what, 14, 15 years, have five kids? What is this all? How would you even carry out an affair with someone while your father-in-law is president and your husband is basically his right-hand man? How would that happen? They were married for like 13 years. She used to be a little bit more urban, I guess. Like, I remember when they first got divorced and I was looking, people said that they were shocked she married him. I think her father-in-law had actually tried to hit on her. I think she got out when she saw shit going down in the White House because she's super low profile and she's been very cool about the kids going to Mar-a-Lago with his girlfriend and stuff. I feel like it was over for a while, but I really find Vanessa actually a lot more interesting than, than the others. So Donald tried to hit on Vanessa? Yeah. Who has that he tried to hit on? I remember going to Trump Tower on a field trip and we were all looking for Trump. That was like in the 80s where Trump was like king of New York. We we all thought we're going to have that moment like Home Alone 2 where he runs into Kevin. Remember? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You think you were going to run into him. So did they, did she have an affair with her security detail? Supposedly it's not clear if this relationship was before or after the divorce. Hmm. The agent did not face disciplinary action. 
because officially he was not guardian of her at the time. So obviously she was spending time with some of them that were not, but it's like the bodyguard, the movie, this happened in that Dubai divorce, which we're going to cover on a separate one. Is Tiffany still seeing her? No, she's, she's engaged to a billionaire. Mm, Nice work, Tiffy. But she began spending an unusual amount of time alone with the Secret Service agent after split from boyfriend. Oh. Who's she engaged to? Some billionaire son of some dude. He, she's oh. older. He, he proposed after she graduated from Georgetown. Okay, that's good. I mean, Marla will be taken care of because I always worry about Marla. I mean, she was kind of brushed to the wayside, really. She was. And her daughter wasn't even really raised with him. Tiffany went to Georgetown just to get closer to him. They were like a pair of dirty socks that no one wanted to deal with. You don't want to wash them. They're so dirty, you don't really want to wash them. But you don't want to throw them away because they're still kind of good. So you kind of keep them in a back drawer. That was Tiffany and Marla. And I really feel bad for those two. Not real, real bad, but moderately bad. I always see pictures of Tiffany out on the world stage where she was like at a Greek swim club or whatever, or Miami. Are people hanging out with her because of her dad or because of her? I thought he was very good looking. It was Christmas 1997, right after Trump separated from his second wife, Marla Maples. Allison was set up on a blind date by a mutual friend. She spoke to Victoria Ricagno. Was there a love connection? At first, I thought there was, you know, and we got along great. She was 27 years old. He was 50. Allison was a beautiful model gracing the pages of Elle magazine. He was just so smart. And I mean, I know there have been a lot of things that have been said about him, but he, to me, he was just a great, great guy. Allison met Trump and his family during the holiday season in Aspen, Colorado. There she is seated next to his son, Donald Jr. On their first date, she says the restaurant comped the business mogul and Trump responded graciously. He gave them a very generous generous tip. He tipped $100 on a $40 meal. Despite the recent criticism of Trump's treatment of women. There's a, still a significant portion of women in this country that have a problem with Donald Trump. Donald Trump has a big problem with women. Allison says Trump was a perfect gentleman. I really think he has a very sweet side to him that a lot of people don't see. He was just very gentlemanly, opening doors and, you know, pulling out the chair for me. Was he a good kisser? I only kissed him once, actually, and it was just a short peck, so I don't really know. They went out just three times, then things fizzled. Could it be that he was preoccupied? He talked about um, Marla and, and how much he loved her. I'm sexy and I know it. See, I don't know about you, but when I was in like the 90s, all the supermodels were like a big deal. Like Linda Evangelista, you had Crawford, you had Naomi Campbell. Who were some of the other ones? Kate Moss. The models were a big deal in the 80s and 90s. Today, I feel like it's so saturated because of social media and stuff. You just you just don't have the supermodels like what you had back then. So Elite Modeling Agency was one of the big was one of the big ones. And so they had a league table of models that they had slept with called the podium. The the boss is there. I heard about this. They said it in a very derogatory term with extra points for virgins and younger women. That is bananas. Cause you know, some of those elite models are around 12 or 13, right? Yeah. Some of the models literally started when they were 14 on the road on their own. They got, they would get recognized in an airport or whatnot. 
And so a whistleblower told the French police probing the 1990s rape claims. Wow. So a Lebanese businessman is helping French prosecutors who are investigating claims of rape and sexual abuse against agency boss Gerald Murray. So Omar, the Lebanese guy, he worked for Gerard, Gerald? Yeah. And so there's about 13 claims made by women that went to the French prosecution. And the businessman said that Marie kept scoreboard with a few bookers to tally who slept with the most women <sighs> and awarding the, that point system. That's so disgusting. Marie worked until 2010. Isn't it disgusting? I mean, there's been stories of a lot of the models who had like bad ends. A teenager is accused of killing a former contestant from the show, America's Next Top Model, uh, Mirjana Puhar, and two men were found dead in a house in Charlotte, North Carolina. Police say the victims knew the 19-year-old suspect, Emmanuel Jesus Rangel, and they also say that the killings were drug-related. Puhar appeared on America's Next Top Model last year. On Instagram, the show said it was saddened by her death and called her a vivacious and promising young woman. And a lot of them talked about sexual abuse or sexual exploitation and, and at these young ages. Because, I mean, back then you didn't even really have people watching out for them because your parents were stateside because they had to work or and you you had a limited amount of time. They were a lot of them weren't even making a ton of money. That's why you see a lot of models that hooked up with rockers or businessmen and stuff. And they would live in these dorms with other young models who, you know, if you're in a dorm with like five or six other girls who are between the ages of 14 and 17, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? You're all going to want to go to the parties. It's, it's crazy. Perception of international modeling is women embodying beauty and glamour, but there is an ugly side of the business that most people never see. Underage girls, not women, girls, often from poor families, exploited by false promises and unfair treatment. This Sunday on PBS is the broadcast premiere of a documentary that follows the story of a 13-year-old Russian girl from Siberia. She travels alone to Japan to start her modeling career after being promised money and a guaranteed shot at success. Now joining us now is uh, Sarah Ziff, a founder of the Model Alliance. It's an organization that works to improve the working conditions and ethical standards of the fashion industry. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you're very familiar with this documentary. And what we saw just there was Nadia. She's only 13, despite what she looks like. I mean, she's only 13. And uh, she's very hopeful she is on her way to Tokyo for the first time. She's from a small town in Siberia. We're not talking a street-wise 13-year-old. Yeah. She gets to Tokyo. There's no one there to greet her. She doesn't speak the language at all. She has to figure out how to find her way to the apartment that she's staying at. Tiny, tiny apartment uh, she, that she shares. I, I can't even call it an apartment, sorry. It's a room with a bunk bed. She shares with another potential model. They spend their days going to call after call after call. She gets one job. In the end, she ends up returning to Russia, owing the modeling agency money. When they had guaranteed her, I think it was $8,000, right? Right. I find it interesting that it's on the heels of like the me too movement like it didn't come out sooner i would think this would be something that would come out immediately after all of hollywood got taken down you would think that this would be right on the forefront but it's taken them this long i think because it's probably in the european arena of exposure and whatnot and i'm surprised mm -hmm. more models haven't spoken out but i don't know if it's just because it hasn't been on the wave yet or this will be the next wave of it but i think it's all good that it's coming out i don't think it's all good what happened there should be an industry certain industry standards and more you know protections in place 
that's the thing with like Gigi Hadid. I feel their mom was so into their career that this would have never happened. You know what I mean? She was like, had her finger every step they took when she wasn't making those beautiful cooked chickens and racing up that mountainside to get the lemons. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember her telling Gigi, do you want to eat that or whatnot? Like teaching her what she needs to eat. I just remember being like very shocked about that. Yolanda, I saw some pictures of her recently. She's still a smoke oh, show. Yeah. Good God, if I could have those Nordic jeans. Speaking mm-hmm. of Nordic jeans, Swedish jeans, by the way. Okay, so... You're always the best with segues. <laughs> I'm going to hit you over the head with my segue. Recently, a series of love letters written by President John F. Kennedy himself to his Swedish mistress are going up for sale at Boston Auction House. Now, I originally thought, okay, these were before he married Jackie. But apparently, um, the intimate letters addressed to Gunilla von Post, an aristocrat he met weeks prior to his 1953 marriage to Jacqueline Bouvier, reveal Kennedy describing their time together as a bright memory of my life. The eight-page collection, which includes one full letter and two partial messages, come from Von Post's personal collection and are expected to fetch over $30,000. The secret love letters that have been kept under lock and key since they were first sent today for the first time, John F. Kennedy's letters to a Swedish woman are going up for auction. They've been called a window into the complicated and conflicted existence that was Kennedy's life. Here's Chris Bury. He was the dashing and ambitious senator, 36 and already engaged. She, a beautiful blue-blooded Swede, only 21. They met on the French Riviera in the summer of 1953, danced all night, and parted with a passionate kiss. So began a secret romance documented in these 14 letters and telegrams from John F. Kennedy to Ganilla von Post. They have never been seen in public before. It's a real sensitive and tender love affair that you can really understand through the correspondence. Now 78 years old, Ganilla von Post first revealed the affair in a 1997 book and in this interview on ABC's 2020. His smile was absolutely, what do you say, contagious. It was really electrical between us. Only three weeks after those sparks flew in France, Kennedy married Jacqueline Bouvier in Newport, Rhode Island. But the very next spring and summer, he wrote Ganilla to rekindle their flame. I thought I might get a boat and sail around the Mediterranean for two weeks with you as crew. My heart, boom, 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 boom. I was very happy to hear from him, but I said, he's married man. That summer, their plans for a secret rendezvous fell apart when JFK badly injured his back. After two months in the hospital and surgery that nearly killed him, he still pursued her. Under that beautiful, controlled face that still haunts me, beats a warm heart. Another year goes by before they finally reunite, slipping away to this old castle in Sweden. I borrowed him for a, for a week, a beautiful week, that no one can take away from, from, from that. She kept Kennedy's letters locked up until now. Today, they'll be offered to the public on legendaryauctions.com. Online bidding for the Kennedy Notes begins at $25,000. They will be auctioned off as a collection to preserve the love story and enhance the value. In JFK's final letter to Von Post, writing from the Riviera, he senses that their destinies are drifting apart. 
I just got word today that my wife and sister are coming here. It will all be complicated the way I feel now, my Swedish flicka. All I have done is sit in the sun and look at the ocean and think of Ganilla. All love, Jack. I think the correspondence is seeping with regret on both sides that these two people wanted to be with each other and it just wasn't to be. So exactly two years after it began, the torrid and fleeting romance came to its bittersweet end. Now, Von Post, the Swedish, you know, mistress, we're going to call her mistress because this actually went on after he got married. She passed away in 2011. And before she died, she wrote a book in 1997 about a memoir about her relationship with John F. Kennedy. And it was called Love Jack. Now, they first met in 1953 in Cannes, France. This was uh, right before he got married to Jacqueline. And according to RR Auction, they later spent a very blissful and intimate week consummating the relationship in Sweden in August of 1955. Now, that's like two years after he'd been married to Jackie. So let me tell you, like I said, scandal follows every leg of the political arm. And um, he had mistresses. He was quite a ladies' man. Now we see that in a letter dated February 1956, Kennedy appeared to respond to news of Vaughn Post's own marriage to a landowner, Anders Ekman. He wrote, I must say, I was sad to learn that after all, I had to do a terrible Kennedy, but okay, work with me here. <laughs> you got to do a Boston accent. You gotta, like, I got to go park the car. I got to go. I must say, I had to learn that <laughs> after all, you are not coming to the U.S. and you are marrying a farmer, which by the way, a um, landowner is not a farmer. You know, I mean, he could have been like a wealthy, wealthy landowner. That's so a Kennedy thing. You're marrying a farmer. <laughs> and referring to the Paris trip to Sweden, he continued, I was planning to come back again next summer to see you. And now what will happen? In any case, let me know what you are going to do. <laughs> what is he from Jersey? <laughs> anyway, if you, if you don't marry, come over to America as I should like to see you. I had a wonderful time last summer with you. It is a bright memory of my life. You are wonderful and I miss you, he concluded. If you don't marry, come over to America. I should like to see you. Are you kidding? <laughs> Just pop in a married with a baby or two. You know when she lost baby Patrick, he was on a boat with his mistress. Oh, God. Which one? He was like the original F boy. I would have been there for it, but he was the original. <laughs> he says, I was planning to come back over next summer to see you. And now what will happen? You know, oh, damn you. You had to go get engaged. And then he says, in any case, let me know what you are going to do. Dude, she's getting married. You know this. What do you mean? You think you're going to send her a letter and she'll be like, oh, let me get rid of my landowner and come. I, my family growing up was completely, he was the first Irish Catholic president. My family of the O'Sullivans worshipped him until my grandmother gave me a biography of his to read that was written by one of his no, it was actually written by one of his best friends he grew up with, detailed how he lost his virginity. And he also, at the time of his autopsy, had venereal disease, which I didn't know what venereal disease was until I looked it up. And then I wanted to know like more specifics, but it did not go into that. Yeah. Mistresses? <laughs> no. Yeah. It like ruined Camelot for me, but we had the records of Camelot. You name it. We had it. Wow. No, my parents liked him too. We were we were Catholic, Italian Catholic, and they liked him too. But I think it, it 
at the time, the inner circle knew what a slut he was. And after after his death and years later, the whole world got to find out what a hooker he was. Well, he wasn't a hooker because he didn't get paid, but he was just slutty. White House intern has an affair with U.S. president. It happened with Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Now, for the first time, a woman who was an intern to President John F. Kennedy 50 years ago has given her story of the relationship. Mimi Alford says she had an affair with the former president for 18 months, right up until just a few days before he was assassinated. She's just written a book about her time with JFK, so I asked her why she'd taken so long to reveal her side of the story. It's taken so long because I lived with a secret for 45 years, and I kept it a secret. And in 2003, when I was publicly outed, shortly after that, I realized that I needed to take control of the story, finally take control of the story. In that first period, when the president basically seduced you, how how did it happen? I mean, you make it sound like it was quite controlling, quite exploitative, really. Well, it, was contro- it wasn't something that I certainly initiated or something that I expected, so it was controlling in that sense. And it happened um, on the fourth evening of my internship when I was invited to join a group of staffers and um, on the second floor in the residence of the White House. And President Kennedy took me on a tour of the rooms of the White House, and it ended up in a bedroom, and that's where... Um, our first encounter happened, and where I lost my virginity. Did you get the sense that this was something he was doing a lot with other people? No, I didn't really. No, I, I didn't get that sense. Of course, I've learned um, many years later that there were many women um, in his life. In a way, I wish that I had been older and in, been able to be included in some of the things that, that um, events that they went to so that I wouldn't be so invisible. But then it really made me realize that I wasn't so special, even though I've had very um, uh, good but also difficult memories about that time in those 18 months. You were this very young girl. He was the leader of the free world. Uh, Was he exploiting you? Well, it certainly was an incredibly imbalanced relationship and not a good relationship Um, In hindsight, looking back for a 19-year-old to have, for any 19-year-old to be in a relationship with someone who is 45 years old and married and to be at their beck and call. But at the time, at the time, I was 19 years old and I was in this uh, amazing situation in the White House and with these people and I was just, in a way, swept away with it. Our last story of our hot headlines. So we talked on one of our very first episodes about El Chapo's wife, how she turned herself over. I haven't heard much about it. A new narcos is coming out, I think, about the opiate crisis, which they have actual real DEA agents as consultants. There was a really good special about bad guys on Netflix, a series. And I watched this particular episode. And then, so when it came out the news, I was like, oh my gosh, I know him. It was like, Santa, I know him. Ah, Oh my God. Santa here? I know him. Son of a Mexican drug lord who flipped on El Chapo is freed from U.S. prison, but the officials refuse to say if he's now an American witness protection. But what makes this story interesting and sexy or whatever you want to call it is that when El Chapo went to jail, his business partner took it over, which was which is this guy's father, Zimbada. And so the son approached us and said, hey, I want to talk to you guys or I want to make a deal. Well, the Mexican government 
got this. And again, I might be totally murdering this because I'm going off of like my memory of watching the show. You know, he's like a young, good looking dude, has a wife and family. This is the part where I'm like, this is not supposed to be how we're always supposed to be so ethical. And I always think like it's going to be like a movie, you know, like honor or like you give your word. Well, so they met with him, talked to him for like hours. Well, the Mexican government, obviously, because we're operating down there, found out what we were doing. They took Zimbabwe. They like the next day he got busted and he's like, what the hell? Like I was coming in voluntarily to give you guys info. So then he had to call his dad on like some ghost phone. I'm facing a lot of jail time. They took me in and Zimbabwe was like, do what you got to do. Drop a dime on whoever you got to take care of you. So now they said that apparently he had gotten a 15 year sentence in May of 2019. So now he's out. So what the hell? Did he drop a dime on El Chapo's wife, the beauty queen? Like, so there's all kinds of intrigue right now that is definitely, I think, sometime in the future, we're going to be seeing this stuff on Narcos. Oh, absolutely. It'll be a ama- It'll be like a season. So Mayo Zambada sent his son to Mexico City to talk to the EA. Was, was essentially doing logistics for, for Mayo. Mayo was prepping him to be his replacement. He would have been the guy that stepped up and had something happened to Mayo, Vicente uh, would have been the guy in line. It was in Hotel Sheraton in Mexico City, a few meters actually from the U.S. Embassy. There were three DEA agents. Loya Castro, El Vicentillo Lawyers, and El Vicentillo. When wanted guys want to approach DEA, what we want to do is find out if it's even worth it. And they need to understand if you're going to tell us something, you got to tell us everything. Ciao, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Let's play a game. All right. On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it. Just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, it's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard, where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel, because everyone has one, right? 
that features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com. But we don't have a complaints department, just to give you a little heads up. Podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast host or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which carry misdeeds or intrigue podcast or larissa have been am now or will be affiliated the content of this podcast is for personal informational and entertainment purposes only and is not to be viewed for commercial use misdeeds and intrigue podcast respects the intellectual property of others any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain free use sites and or from youtube or other authorized sites to gather information The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only. In the El Chapo trial, Vicente Zambada, the son of El Chapo's partner, Ismael Zambada, took the stand. Vicente was set to be the heir to the Sinaloa cartel before his arrest and extradition. Zabata confirmed what previous witnesses testified, including corruption. He told the court about how Joaquin El Chapo Guzman rebuilt his empire when he escaped from prison and about his deadly feuds with rival cartels. Vincente Zambada will take the stand again later on this morning. So joining us now is criminal defense lawyer and former prosecutor Vinu Varghese to bring us up to speed. So, hey, Vinu, um, the jury heard a lot of stuff. Tell us what happened yesterday. Give us a sense of what the, the highlights of the testimony. Well, I, I, Vincente, the son of El Mayo, right? El Mayo said he said something really important, and I think this potentially is going to play to the defense strategy. He said, "My father is the head of the Sinaloa cartel," so he provided a ton of information about El Chapo, but he confirmed that his dad is the one who ran Sinaloa cartel, and then when El Chapo escaped from prison. He was the one who helped rebuild, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. El Chapo's network because he gave him a cut because it was too dangerous for El Chapo to be doing the work himself. I mean, the, the level of detail he provided was, in, in essence, I mean, it was staggering. The amount of corruption, a million dollars a month paid to Mexican officials to help them keep uh, the, the, the rails and everything going mm-hmm. and all the stuff, including $50,000 to a, a national security chief. And they also had on the payroll a member of former President Vincente Fox, the man who said we wouldn't effing pay for this wall, right. you know, to Trump. He had, they had a member of his team on payroll as well. It's what uh, Vincente testified to. Now, he provided some great details about El Chapo's escape, particularly that El Chapo was taken out. Uh, he confirmed El Chapo was taken when he escaped prison the first time, that he was taken out in a laundry cart by a guard. Right. right? Oh, my Talk about a prisoner airing out his dirty laundry, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, very so, good, very so, good. So, you know, that's how, and he talked about how El Chapo was worried that he would get caught. But the interesting thing about, the most interesting thing, is kind of, it's kind of been glossed over in some of the newspapers about his testimony, what he's potentially getting in return. 
Because he testified <laughs> against his own father, too, in yeah. this. Well, correct. I mean, <laughs> his father's on the run, right? But he, this is very unusual. He said, obviously, uh, all people that cooperate and, and flip and snitch or whatever you want to call it are hoping for a reduced sentence. But in his case, he said that he was also potentially promised a visa to come to the United States. Whoa. And that's really interesting because yeah. the Immigration Nationality Act, Nationality Act prevents judges or anybody from changing sure. the rules of the game. So prosecutors have no power to compel the immigration authorities to give a visa. So the fact that he believes he's going to get a visa or potentially mm -hmm. get a visa is really, I think, fuel, ammunition for the defense say he's making up most of this stuff. All right, well, so he's a new actor in this drama. So who is Vicente Zambada? Uh, what kind of access did he have to information at the cartel, do you think? And really, what is he doing? How much is he putting himself at risk by testifying here? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. If I found the defense attorney, and, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm here talking to you, I'm not representing El Chapo, I would say that this is just all part of the game for him. To have his cake and eat it too, right? He he left the cartel. He's probably not safe in Mexico, right? That's why he wants to stay here in America and get a visa and hopefully get out of jail after mm -hmm. 15 or so years. But he had access. I mean, he was involved since he was 15. He is he is the son of the head of the Sinaloa cartel. So I mean, I think that that you know he he does have access to the information. Now the question is, is he telling the truth on everything? And I think this is something for the defense to exploit. But if he then testifies that it's his father who's actually running the cartel, then how does that work for the prosecution? It sounds like he's a great uh, witness for the defense, and he's going to be on the stand again today. Well, he's not absolving uh, El Chapo. Right. He's telling him that El Chapo ran it with his father, right? And that his father, but his father was dead. So you know, the, the defense's argument from the beginning is that. This is a show trial, that this is all about Mexican corruption. The judge, you know, as, you, as you heard, disallowed any further testimony about Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think this is going to create an appellate issue for El Chapo because the stuff brought out, and I'm going to argue, the defense is going to argue, or they will have argued, that this opened the door to all that testimony to show about American corruption here mm -hmm. as well in this trial. So there's a lot of interesting things. So this case, even if El Chapo goes down, it may be far from over. Hey, you may not know this, but throughout our conversations, we've talked a lot about corruption in Mexico, people getting paid up. Do we know anything about what's happened to any of those officials? No, we haven't yeah. heard uh, anything about it. wondering if they're sitting in cool in their heels yeah. behind bars and, or not. And we, we have to go, but is this playing big in Mexico? No, I mean, uh, I haven't really followed it, no. so I can't, I can't it, answer that, but I imagine it is. He I can was, tell you in the Mexican somewhat of a, of a folk Sure, but in the Mexican community here, they've talked about how everyone's riveted. So, you know, so it can't be that, would be imagine it would be di that different in Mexico. Yeah. Very interesting, Vinu. Thank you. Pleasure.